Hello, viewers. Welcome back to our question time, our Get Understanding with Bishop James. I would like to sincerely apologize for the brief uh, breaking transmission. We had a lot of a service issue and technical issue, but by God's grace, we are back and the devil is not going to win on us. It has been clear that um, uh, the first two or three questions Bishop answered uh, probably some of you may not have heard it properly or it was not in a good hearing position. So we would ask Bishop to kindly uh, go over those answers. So we're going to go one step, one by one, and then Bishop will go over his answers and then we'll carry on from there. So apologies to everybody once again, but so we thank God we are back online and we are going to still have Get understanding with Bishop James. Now, should we all welcome Bishop James with a hand clap? Okay, yeah. So, with the first question, we'll go straight to the question. So, it says, Could a pastor's humility or a leader's humility be seen as his weakness by his congregation? Um, yes, so I answer that question by saying that the answer is yes. Um, uh, it is immature Christians who misunderstand um, the humility of a pastor and therefore take advantage of that and try to, um, you know, belittle him or disrespect his authority because of his humility or because of a challenge that the church is going through or because of the state of affairs, you know, and the pastor is supposed to be just like a leader is supposed to um, wisely blend between being gentle and firm at the same time. Um, so it is a possibility and it is something that has happened over in many, many places where a pastor's humility has been misrepresented to mean that he's weak, but he's not weak. Um, and that it is actually a function of immature Christians who do that. But if you can tell and you are matured, you can tell genuine humility, which you are not supposed to take advantage of. Some people try to, and they realize that they need, um, you know, discipline, and it shocks them to think, oh, they thought that the pastor is vulnerable, but no, he's not going to compromise his calling, his assignment, and his mission. So yes, people tend to take advantage of weak leaders, or those who are humble, and people think that humility is weakness, but it is not weakness. And it is erroneous for anyone to do that. It is actually a sign of immaturity. Matured Christians rather look at the humility of the pastor as strength and they rather submit and follow. So that is the answer. Yes, it is possible that people do that. Thank you, Bishop. So we are not supposed to take the weakness as uh, it's humility as weakness. We're so rather supposed to make it as a strength. Right. Second question says, shall we consider lack of boldness from men and women of God for not being bold to chastise leaders and authority as co um, compared to Peter's hypocrisy with the Gentiles? Yes. So again, you know, the church pastors are supposed to be uh, what one senior police officer said, the, 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 the moral compass mm -hmm. and conscience of society. And so you're supposed to be able to stand in the middle and, and speak out against what is wrong. Um, that is, should be the standard. However, there are situations where you have found uh, pastoral leadership 
uh, finding themselves in a compromised position with a political party and therefore unable to discipline or to speak out, not necessarily discipline, but to speak out against wrongdoing uh, by political leaders. Um, others too, they are just plain uh, timid and, and didn't think it is part of their calling to actually address national issues. But it is part of the assignment of a pastor to address national issues. They are not supposed to be political in that they are being affiliated with a political party, but they can comment on political issues. What we see today is that anytime a man of God raises his voice, then he said, don't get into the arena. He's supposed to get into the arena. The people in this church are members of the society. They are members of the nation. And he needs to speak. He's also a citizen of the country. He's supposed to speak, just like every citizen should speak. The only thing is that sometimes it's the way you come across as a man of God. And the point is that learn to stand in the middle so that whoever comes, you can actually deal with them just like uh, traditional rulers are supposed to also do. Uh, but then sometimes some get themselves so much inside the politics and when the others or the other side could secretly identify that you have been in some secret meetings with a political party, next time you speak, they see and hear you from that political uh, color. And that is why sometimes they fight against men of God who rise up to speak. Um, so yes, and then there are also the genuine case where some people are actually, you know, compromise their position as men of God, and therefore they are unable to deal with, with issues that they should be dealing with. So um, all the scenarios can play out, uh, but then the biblical position is that the man of God should be able to stand in integrity and be able to speak to the conscience of the nation and to be able to speak when things are not going well. The lack of boldness to speak on issues, you know, silence when people are being persecuted or the economy is being mismanaged or wrong things are being done by those in authority is complicity. And the church then would have failed. So those uh, of us who have got the platform must be able to use it wisely and at the same time address issues in a very dispassionate way and not taking political sides regardless of whoever is in power. So we should, it should be done, whoever asked the question, and to all of us. Yeah. Now, um, again, last week, we said we, we are carrying on from last week. So we had a follow-up question about when we're talking about um, uh, pastors, you know, saying that they, you should give a specific amount to the church mm -hmm. because either God has said or the pastor himself feels like. So there's a question in relation to that. So the question says, uh, what about sowing a specific amount into a church? Is it biblical? Uh, what if a man of God is led to ask for a specific amount given? Okay, I think I, I tried to address that, but of course this, it's like a follow-up question and it needs some reiteration. Um, the question is when he's led, um, we will assume genuinely Holy Spirit led, no issues. The challenge with that style is when it becomes a formula you know where it's like every service and every time it is this but of course the holy spirit on certain occasions uh, may direct again remember that giving is an act of faith if the holy spirit directed at a particular service that um you know this is what we are doing and that you should show this amount of money into the work of the ministry. It must be tied to that. It shouldn't be tied to
to things like, you know, bring 2,000 and you are going to get 4,000 in return, you know. But if we have to sow into a prophetic, you know, if it's a prophetic direction um, that the Lord is saying, there are times that we have connected like that by faith and the Spirit of God has led that. If the Spirit of God leads it, there will be a Spirit-led results um, so that it doesn't become a trick. Um, what I was speaking against last week more is about the trickery, uh, which I don't find biblical, about combining scriptural verses uh, and tying it to, you know, come for a Psalm 91 blessing. The Psalm 91 itself is sitting there already. So to have 91 blessing by bringing 91 pounds is an issue. The other challenge with that sort of style is because the 91 and the verses and chapters of the Bible were not written by God. The chapters and verses were put there by Bible scholars and the Bible translators for the purpose of ease of reference. reference. When David was writing, he didn't put verse 6 and anything. No, it just flows like that. When Paul is writing, it just flows like that. When everything is being written from Genesis, it's just a continuous write-up. There were no chapters and verses. You know, in our days when we're writing letters, we leave paragraphs. We don't put number one. And we know where paragraph one is, etc. Now, for the ease of reference, to be able to refer to a particular place in this whole large book of books called the Bible, 66 books in all, to be able to refer to a, a something in verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 1, that is why the chapter and verses were put there. But from the beginning, as it was being written, as men were being moved by the Holy Spirit to write Holy Scripture, there were no chapters and verses. So the Lord did not put a chapter there, and he didn't put a verse there. Those ones are not his word. His word are the words, but the chapters and verses are not his words. It is put there by humans for the purpose of reference. So the Holy Ghost cannot lead us to actually say that to get some 120 blessing, you need 120 pounds by everybody. We can be led by the Holy Spirit to ask everyone to sow a seed of 2,000 pounds. If the Holy Spirit leads that for that particular prophetic atmosphere, but the point is that it should not become a formula. If a rima comes, the rima can't become the formula. That every time the Holy Ghost said 2,000. You know, it can't be like that. I believe that whatever we need money for must be told the people of God. People must be taught to learn to sow prophetically and by faith into things. And for what purpose? And then there is a blessing. When we sow, there is a blessing. There is a blessing when we sow. When we give to God, there is a blessing. When we give to the house of God, there is a blessing. When we give to the projects of God, there is a blessing. And there are times that in a prophetic atmosphere, there can be a leading by the Lord. But it must not become a formula. That is what I have to say to that particular uh, question. Thank you, Bishop. So giving is faith and it's not a formula. All right. So uh, we've got quite interesting questions coming up. So the next question, Bishop, he says, God does not live in church buildings. We always say that, yes, the church, we are the church, but not the building. Why do churches spend so much money on buildings if that is not what God lives in? Carpets, air conditioners, and the like. So <laughs> if God does not live in that, why are we spending so much money on those things? 
powerful question. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a logical question to, to ask, but biblically and um, in the matters of faith and in the word of God, um, you know, let me start off by uh, being a typical African and, and asking and answering a question with a question. And, and being like Jesus, being rhetorical and sometimes asking, answering a question with a question. It is true God does not dwell in temples made with hands. It is true that God does not dwell in physical buildings. But then we have to ask ourselves, the hospital buildings don't treat patients, but we build it for the staff to work in it to enable them function and treat people. The theaters don't act the drama, but it is built. The workplaces and our offices don't do the job, but it is built so that people can go in and work to function and produce results. The stadiums don't play the football, but it is powerfully built and millions are spent on that. Stadiums don't play the football. So why do we bother building stadiums? You know, powerful edifices and state houses don't run the politics of the country. That is run by humans. They can stay in their home and do it. Why do we build palaces for kings? And so in the same way, much as God does not dwell in temples made with hands, Church buildings are buildings that are dedicated to God, the creator of the universe. If buildings are built for people, for institutions who did not create the world, why can't we build buildings for God and dedicated to God? Now, if we go into his word, we will find out that he brought the idea of a building for himself. Exodus 25, chapters 25 all the way to chapter 31, gives an elaborate detail of God coming to say, first of all, asking Moses, tell my people to bring me an offering. And the offering is to build him a tabernacle. That was even a temporary structure. And the requirements were amazing. Gold. That's very, very expensive. I haven't seen any church in our day Asking people for their church building, asking their members to bring gold. It will be headline news. God asks for his first. It is not even the permanent temple. It's just tabernacle in the wilderness. And it was gold, silver, brass, very expensive stuff. We must be able to understand that it is not a waste of resources. It is an acknowledgement of the magnificence and omnipotence of God. That we can construct edifices that edify God. And so, if in the scriptures, we see God himself spelling out details. Again, if you go to Chronicles and Samuel, you will find out God again coming to David and giving him detailed architectural drawings. And then when most David realized he wasn't the one to build, he laid in store gold in abundance 
timber in abundance. These were expensive things. These were requirements of God for buildings that are dedicated to God Almighty. I mean, if we can't dedicate any building that should glorify the creator of the earth, should we be doing that for casinos? And theaters and stadiums? So, the point is that the church is not wasting money on this unless you don't have a revelation of God. But in the scriptures, church buildings are still required. When people make that statement of God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, Jesus Christ came on the earth. A substantial part of his ministry was carried out in other people's buildings. The Lord's Supper was first commissioned in somebody's building. He sent his disciples to go. And he said to them, go and you meet a man carrying a pitcher. Tell him that the master has need of his house. And the master would like to spend that night there to, to spend the Passover in that house. So there was a building. Remember the Holy Ghost first made land fall on the earth on the day of Pentecost, not under a tree, in an upper room somebody built. The church met in a room which is part of a building, if it wasn't there. If God was shy of buildings, why would the Holy Ghost baptism, first time, take place in the building? When Peter was arrested and the church prayed for seven days nonstop, they prayed in the house of John Mark, in the house of Salome, where many are gathered, Acts chapter 12, and they prayed for seven days if there was no house. When the disciples were feeling sad because Jesus had risen from the dead and they didn't know what was going on after his death, they were in a room when he came into that room and breathed upon them, receive ye the Holy Spirit. It was in a room that Thomas had to ask, is that you? I want to be sure. It was in a room. A room, part of somebody's building. So Jesus worked from people's buildings. And the scriptures also tell us that God gave detailed description of how he wants his temple to be constructed. And they were not cheap. If we can build for ourselves, why can't we have buildings dedicated to almighty God? So it is true that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. But we need church buildings to carry out the mission of the church. If we will train leaders, we need a place to train them. If we train ushers, where are we going to train them? Online? <laughs> Baby dedication? Weddings? Marriage ceremonies? Funeral services? Every kind of service you can think about. Church buildings are necessary. Don't follow the line of the devil. There are buildings dedicated to Satan. Nobody's talking about it. When things will be done for God alone. A certain spirit rises that want to question things that are done for God. The last time somebody questioned something that was done for Jesus, it was Judas. He said the poor were still there. Jesus said the poor you always have with you. The Bible said not that he even cared for the poor, but that he even wanted to steal from the offering. So the truth is that these buildings exist. They don't do anything, but they create the platform by which works are done. We can disciple people in a building. There are many things that are done in a church building to run the place. Besides also, it is also the office for the pastor and those in full-time ministry. 
for counseling and so many other things. The church building is needed. And sometimes when the church has the means and they build something that is expensive, expensive itself is, uh, is relative. <laughs> it's relative. What is expensive to someone in a village may not be expensive at all for some people in a city, in a particular economy, in a particular country. So the bottom line is that church buildings must be constructed for God. The point is it is dedicated to God. It is not the property of the pastor. It is dedicated to Almighty God. And if he's the creator of the universe, why can't we dedicate something powerful and nice to him? But when we look into the scriptures, his own requirements for his buildings, gold, silver, brass, very precious stones were used for it. And he demanded it throughout. So yes, we are in the New Testament. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we are very expensive. But the church must gather. And if, as I said earlier in my preamble, if the hospital buildings don't treat the patients, but it is human beings called doctors who work there, then they could as well work from home. Everybody could go and see them under a tree. But why do we need that building? Because it carries certain facilities for the function. In the same way, the church building also carries certain facilities for the function of the church and the mission of the church. Amen. Amen. That's, that's a really astute answer for making the case of a church building. I'm yet to find anybody who can come up with something else. Uh, Bishop, there's, there are, well, still on church buildings, a question is saying, okay, so does it have to be big, mega, super mega? You know, <laughs> any church, any building which can accommodate people is okay, but does it have to be big? And I'm sure big, he means, you know. <laughs> Again, I mean, thank you for the question. Um, should a church building be big? <laughs> Should it be a mega building? You see, again, it's relative. <laughs> Where big means what? <laughs> see, there are, you see, when you have been involved in ministry for a very long time, you will begin to understand that those outside the church or those not involved in the internal running of ministry, the way church is run or church is done appears differently to those outside as compared to those inside. What I mean by that is that, you see, when it comes to ministry, there are different sizes of ministry. The size of a ministry informs the size of its expenditure. A 100-member church or a 50-member church has a certain expenditure it runs as compared to a 5,000-seater auditorium. Now, if you are building a church building for a hundred seater, it will not cost that much. It won't be that big as compared to a church that is sitting 1,000, 5,000, or 10,000. So depending on the size of the church and its mission, its building is built to accommodate its capacity. Of course, it's not wise if you're a hundred member church to build a church building that only accommodates 100 people. That's not wise at all. Are you not aiming for growth? The scripture tells us that if you follow the sequence in the scriptures, 
it is God's plan that the church grows bigger. Jesus set the example. He came to set the pace. He came to found his church. He came alone. Then he found his 12. Then there was a 70 also. On the day of Pentecost, on the day he left to heaven, there were 120 committed members of his church, even though there were thousands that followed. They were the crowd, but there was a congregation, 120. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were added to the 120. So assuming that they were meeting in a small room, remember the upper room couldn't take them? The upper room could take 120 people in the room. That means it wasn't a small room. It was big. It could take 120 people. But then when 3,000 came to add to it, they can't meet there again. And after the 3,000, so that means the church now became 3,120. By chapter 2, first day, first day church opened, 3,000 souls came to add up to the church and they became members of the church. By the next chapter, the Bible says 4,000 were added. By the time we hit the fifth chapter, the Bible says 5,000 more were added. Then the next time we were told multitudes. And by the time we get to chapter 6, we are told the number of disciples multiplied. So you could see an exponential growth of the church. The church must grow. So if the church started with 20 people and they have a 20-seater accommodation, when they grow to be 1,000, they can't be in a small building. It must still be bigger. And anytime you are making room, you don't make room. Wise leadership don't make room for the current number. You make room for potential increase. That is proper use of God's resources. So, again, you know, the expenditure, for instance, the kind of speakers that you need for an auditorium that takes 50 people may not be the same speakers you need for 5,000 seater auditorium. You need bigger speakers. You need sophisticated speakers that can make you reach the number of people that are in the room. So there are a lot of things that go into it. So things about church, for those outside, may appear expensive, elaborate, but it's not. I mean, as we are broadcasting to you, it's not free. The cameras, the lighting systems, and everything that you are getting a very good output there. We are not in some obtuse angle sitting somewhere in a dark room. And I'm talking from an iPad. But you are getting quality service which is blessing you. It's not cheap. It involves some money. For the church to disciple people, materials must be printed. Even Zoom is not free. Yeah, it's not free. If you want a free one, you only have 40 minutes. And even that you are limited. If you want 300 people to connect at the same time, you have to go to premium and professional. There are levels in it. And you pay every, every year for, for that subscription. So the work of the ministry involves a lot of money. And so when you talk about must a church building be big, must it have air condition and all of that, these things, they are not luxuries. They are necessities. If the auditorium is that hot, the people will not concentrate. So in certain countries, as the ministry can afford, they have it there and makes everybody feel comfortable within it so that they can pay attention to the word that is coming. So there's quite a lot of expenditure that goes. 
the bigger the church, the salary, the expenditure for salary increases because there are more people who have been employed as compared to a church that is just starting. So it's relative. You know, what is expensive in a village church may not be the same as that of a city church. So I believe that my answer to that is that the size of the building, um, at the end of the day, we mustn't just build things as a status symbol or just do it and waste resources. But you build according to your capacity and, and, and the motive for it and the mission that God has given to the church. So as to whether the church building is big or not, I believe it depends on the congregation size, the vision of the church, the mission of the church. And I believe that it is the proper thing to do to really build according to your size and give allowance for future growth. Because there's no need in actually spending all the money and build something small. Then when you start growing, what do you do? You now move and say you are now going to look for another building. That's not wise. So you need to plan from Bishop's analogy. The church is, uh, you know, his analogy of you know the hospital is the doctors who work there. Mm. The church is also as an organization. It's a spiritual and a human organization. Therefore, we need to plan as well. So, mm. thank you, Bishop. Now the next questions are uh, on tithes. So, mm. and then there's a one quick follow-up. Maybe I'll switch that one in, and then okay. Um, they say, you know. Um, on the specific amount, if a pastor can ask for a specific amount, it says mm. that, what about if a pastor is led to say, um, God says I should, um, he needs 100 pounds. But God, God told him 100 pounds. Then he starts reducing the amount, probably because people are not coming until maybe 10 pounds when he's able to get people. So, you know, so the question, oh, I'm thinking the question, is, if God said 100 pounds, why are you reducing it to See, these, these are the things I'm talking about. <laughs> You see, the congregation, they are not blind and they are not deaf. That's why we must be careful when we say God said. See, we must be careful of deific pronouncements. God said. I think it is safe rather to say I feel <laughs> than God said. Because that is the issue. If you said God said there are 10 people here to give 100 pounds. See, sometimes you hear that. God says there are 10 people here to give 100 pounds. God said. If 15 people start coming, you have to stop them. See, so it is better to rather say that I want 10 or more people to give 100 pounds for the work of God or to sow into this for the, you know, that, that is much better. But the moment we say God said, see, God cannot lie. So the moment we say God said, and then we start varying what he said, we, we begin to make people have doubts as to whether God said or not. It begins to pose questions of integrity. And then also the usual enemies of the church latch on that and begin to say, look at what is going on. They said God said. You know, and if God said 100, we shouldn't be reducing it. You know, unless it is going to be in different phases where there is a 100 first. And then now he's saying that another group here should give 50. Another group should give 100. I believe that there should be a better way of constructing it and presenting it. There is, there is that prophetic nature of, you know, there's a certain word that has come and people must sow into it by faith. Those things, they, they are there. They are biblical. They are spiritual. However, we must be careful not to be seen to be fleecing the people 
and taking undue advantage of people and lying in the name of the Lord. You know, if we say the Lord said 20 people are in this building and they are coming to give 100 pounds and we see them coming, one, two, three, four, five. When you get to 20, you should stop. I believe you should stop. God said 20. But if more people are coming, then maybe more people now have faith and they want to join their faith to that. I think somewhere along the line, a man of God who is leading or operating this should be able to pause at the 20 and now as he sees more people coming, should be able to say, I believe God's 20 has come, but I believe that other people want to now latch onto this atmosphere and so you are welcome to come along. You know, that saves the situation than being quiet and 200 people have come. To the, to the person sitting down or to that layman who had visited the church, he said, I thought God doesn't lie. He said 20, but we have 100. You know, that's the issue. Or he said 100, and now because three people have come for a long time, now he starts saying, the Lord is now saying 40. I mean, he's not bargaining on the streets <laughs> of, of Accra. <laughs> <laughs> Bishop, that's, that's really interesting. You see, the Lord, you know, he, he looks on his word to perform it. That it's not a bargaining place for us to be using his name as he has led us. When also, you know, he hasn't led you. Yeah. Um, so the next question is on tithes. Now, mm. the, it's interesting. It says, should pastors also pay their tithe? Who should they pay it to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. Yes. So yeah. the question is, should pastors also pay tithe? Yes. Um, I am very comfortable with the word give tithe than pay um, because we, it's giving rather than payment. It's giving. It's an act of worship. It's an offering. Um, pastors are first and foremost Christians and pastors must be first and foremost Christians. The first people who must tithe in church should be the pastor. And so I subscribe to that biblical position that the pastor must first of all be a Christian and he must give his offering and also tithe. Um, and they say, where should he send it to? to? To the church he pastors. Now, sometimes you've heard in different associations and things to say, um, uh, you know, in the scriptures, the law was given when, when the tithing was law under the Old Testament, remember that last week I shared with you, the principle runs through even after the cross. In the New Testament, there's a place for tithing. Um, but what I'm sharing with you is that when the, the Levites received tithes, the Bible says that the, the Levites or the priests, they tithe the tithe. They tithe the tithes. So there's a tithe of the tithes. They tithe it to the high priest. Because the high priest takes it on behalf of God. So they tithe. Now ask you, where is the high priest also tithing to? To God. Now, for the pastor, whether he's a senior pastor of the church or an assistant pastor in the church, I believe that the right place to tithe is your church. Because if you don't serve that example, that means that your members too can have a choice as to where they send their tithe. That is why the tithe must be in the house of God. So the pastor must tithe in the church. Now, you don't um, assume that because you are the pastor, um, the tithe is yours. It's not yours. The tithe belongs to the Lord. 
you must also be a steward as a servant of God and a child of God, a Christian first of all, and give your offerings and your tithe and believe God to also bless you. When you are paid, when there's a set um, salary for you as the pastor of the church, when the month ends, you'll be paid by the finance department. You'll be paid by administration. But, and then you tithe your tithe as well. So you don't, some people think that because the pastor is a senior pastor of the church, he doesn't have to tithe. He's supposed to tithe. You must be a Christian first. And as I always say, I don't argue for tithing because I'm a pastor. We were arguing tithing when we were in secondary school, when we had no clue we were even going to become pastors. But we can see it over and over. All the books and all the arguments against tithing, you can punch holes in all of them. It shouldn't be about percentage. It should be about our understanding that if God is source of every blessing we have, what can, what can we give to him that is too big? It's when we get to that mindset, we start throwing the percentages away. Because that 10% is even too small to give to God if he is the source of all blessings. It is an understanding and a revelation. So the pastor must tie to the church where he, he pastors. The next question, still on tithes, says, where is the right place to take our tithes and offerings? Is it only to the church? I'm um, assuming it's a local church. Or can I give my tithes to an orphanage, for example? Um, okay. <laughs> it's a two... Part question. Questions, yes. Okay, so where should we take our tithes? Um, throughout the scriptures, um, right from when the principle was introduced, uh, it is taken to the house of God. Um, before it even became a law, uh, as it was practiced by Abraham, they, they tied to a priest. You know, so, so God's ordained priest. Uh, there was Melchizedek that he tied to. And so... Um, right through the Old Testament, we see that God pointed where it should be sent. It should be sent to his house. Now, when we got into the New Testament, that's where um, there's a revelation you must have. Remember that the members of the early church were Jews. The leadership of the church were Jews. They understand Judaism. They understand the laws. But something changed. There is no Jew in his right mind who would take an offering or a tithe elsewhere, it must be received by a Levite. Every offering, every tithe is received by the Levites who are priests and out of whom you have a high priest. After the death of Christ, and we see the principle of early giving in the early church, Acts chapter 4 tells us that and many sold their things. This is early first principle of giving in New Testament. <laughs> they sold land, houses, and brought all the offering to church. And they laid it at the apostles' feet. A Jew doing this, something has shifted. The Levitical priesthood has come to an end. The apostolic order has taken over. The order God set in the church, apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, this fivefold has taken over from the Levitical priesthood. For Jews to no longer take their offering into the synagogue or to the temple, but to come and lay it at the apostles' feet. In chapter 4 of Acts, you see it twice at the apostles' feet. Where is the apostle located? 
where the apostle is located, that's where we send the offering. That's why Ananias and Sarah brought theirs to church. Just that they messed about with it and they had to die in church. But they brought it to church. So it is at the apostles' feet, that's where we send our tithes. That's where we send our offerings to our local church where our pastor is who feeds us to the church you belong, that local church. That's where it is. Now, the church must be responsible for the needy in society. And everybody, when you are blessed, must also be responsible for the needy in society. But let me counsel to say here that from the biblical standpoint, it is unbiblical and it is unscriptural to take your tithe to an orphanage. It is unbiblical, it is unscriptural to give your tithe to charity. It is to the apostles' feet. There is a receiving of it there and there is a pronouncement of blessing from the priest, the high priest of God. There is none of them in a charity, there is none of them in an orphanage. After you have given your tithe, which belongs to God, because his glory he shares with no man, then out of your own free will, you can make a donation to a charity or to an orphanage, but the tithe belongs to God. And the orphanage has not replaced God. The needy, the needy next door neighbor has not replaced God. The tithe doesn't go to them. The tithe goes to God. This is the proper way of, of approaching biblical principles and the word of God. All other things we can do. And as a church in a community, the church also shows its care to the needy in the community. The church must not shake that responsibility. When every tithe and offering was brought to the apostles' feet, the church decided what it can be, what can be used for. So they distributed severally to many as they require and as they need. But don't substitute that. Don't make that assumption. I've heard someone say in the past, okay, you think that can be donated to the women's ministry. The women's ministry are not the high priest. They are not the altar. The children's ministry don't receive tithe. The youth ministry don't receive tithe. The ushering department, they have need, but they don't receive tithe. The tithe must be laid at the apostles' feet, at the altar. That's where offerings and tithe are sent. You can send your donations to support the needy, the poor, and charity. This is the biblical approach. Thank you, Bishop. This is, this is amazing. This is very insightful. I don't know. Um, maybe let me come back on it. The apostles' feet. So if, if I know another apostle who is not my pastor, mm. but then, yes, he's an apostle. So <laughs> can I send my tithe there? <laughs> you know. Uh, you, you, can, you can support him if you have some donation to give, but you don't tithe to him. To him, okay. Because you belong to a house. That's, right. That's where you are fed. Is that, that, because see, that's the thing. Some people give to uh, other ministries, you yes. know, like uh, Benny Hinn Ministries, that's for the right. want of a better word. Benny Hinn Ministries, Billy Graham, all those. You can give them to them, but you can't send tithe to them. They are not your pastor. Mm -hmm. okay. When you have baby, is Benny Hinn coming to name the baby for you? <laughs> <laughs> is he the one coming to bless your wedding? Burial, baby dedication, and all the other things. You can support some ministries, but your tithe must go to your pastor. 
when I say pastor, to the church where you belong. Because it's, you see, you see, the reason why the world and everyone looks at it is because of some of these uh, fake prophets and fake pastors <laughs> who take the tithe as their own. You know, it's, it's mine and they take. This is what is causing all the problems around. But it doesn't stop you from actually giving to God's ordained place. Because there are fake doctors. Even in the United Kingdom, some doctors have been found to, you know, not have practiced according to standard and they have been struck off a list, etc. But you have never been to any hospital and you have actually questioned the doctor seeing you that, can I see your certificate? You haven't done that. You believe them and you go ahead. So even though they are fake pastors, they are also genuine ones. And so we don't think the whole house of God has now become a mess. So we don't follow biblical principles. We need to be Christians. We need to understand how these things operate. On occasions, we can donate to certain places. There are times I have helped some other ministries and others, but I don't send my tithe there. My tithe goes to the church that I pastor and the church of which I'm a member to. So I'm not only a pastor of the church, I'm a member of the church. I hold a membership certificate. So that in case somebody comes one day to question my legitimacy of being here, I'm first of all a member. You can't be a leader of an organization you are not a member of. Okay, I hope I answered the question. <laughs> yes, yes, Papa, thank you. So I think we will we'll stick on the questions that are flowing fast on, on the tithing. <laughs> yeah, so there's another tithing question. He says that uh, should our tithe and offering be confidential? Or public, or secondly, should the church keep the records of the tithes, financial contribution of members? Okay, so again, it's twofold questions. Yes. First of all, should one's tithe or offering be confidential That's right. or public? public? All right. Okay. Let me deal with that, and please remind me of the second, second when right. <laughs> I'm done with this, so that I can't, I won't forget. Now, again, let's go to the Bible. Our offerings and our tithes are a matter of private affirmation of faith in God. It's a personal affirmation of faith in God. However, it is carried out publicly. Now, the tithe in the Old Testament was actually part of what we call the heave offerings. The heave offerings were that you bring those type of offerings and you stand publicly and wave them up and down. That is the concept and principle in which when we have to take our tithes, the pastor says, lift it up. We are heaving it as the heave offerings in the, because the tithe belongs to the category of the heave offerings. They heave it. So today we have them in envelopes. So no one will see exactly what you have given is personal to you, except those in finance department but they also observe the ethics of their office. So they are not going to go out to broadcast how many, but you know, how much you have given. However, we have our tithes as a personal thing, but then we publicly bring it out as an affirmation to God. Now, we don't bring it out publicly to show off, but we bring it out publicly as an act of public worship to God. So the content is between us and God. All that people see is that we have lifted something. 
but the inside is between us and God. So, yes, it is private or personal, but it is carried out publicly. Abraham presented tithes to Melchizedek, not privately, publicly. And throughout publicly. They laid it at the apostles' feet publicly. So they brought things to church publicly. But what is inside is between them and God. And that public thing is our act of worship. However, it is a matter of personal relationship with God. So when it comes to offerings and tithes, they are personal things between us and God. However, they are carried out publicly. The second this, part. Yeah. It says um, church should, you know, church records mm. of okay. tithes and financial contributions of members. Should a church keep records of them? Okay. So should a church keep records of the financial contribution of its members? Yes. Um, yes. Again, biblically, how did we know that Abraham gave tithes? It was recorded. How did we know about the tithes of Isaac? And all the other people, it was recorded. How did we know? Now, say, oh, that's Old Testament. Okay, how did we know that Ananias and Sapphira and the rest of the early church gave? It was recorded. How did we get to know exactly how much Barnabas gave? It was recorded. So the scripture itself, and remember that there is a whole book called the book of Numbers that contains statistical records of both the numbers, the giving, the offerings. In fact, the detailed offerings is listed. When Abigail prepared the offering that she was going to use to appease David, it was listed clearly. The number of goats, the number of sheep, all of that. We were told the amount of offering that Solomon gave, it was recorded. Solomon gave 1,000 bullocks one night to God. The queen of Sheba's offering was recorded. So there is a recording of offerings in the scriptures. Now, in our day, again, I said to you, it's a personal thing carried out publicly, but for administrative purposes and in certain jurisdictions, the legal basis of operations of churches, for instance, in the United Kingdom, if you are a registered charity, you are obliged by law to submit your accounts to HMRC and to Charity Commission. Etc. You need to keep records. Um, secondly, there are also, you know, some of these charity givings are, I think, tax deductible. And so, because of that, some people need their records so as to be able to get some tax exemptions um, when you are filing your taxes in certain jurisdictions. And so, it is a wise thing to do. It's also wise for the members of the church to at least get an annual, um, you know, information of their total giving so as to help them as well to see how well they are doing with their resources with God. Um, and so it, it, it is not evil or it is not unbiblical to have such records. It is also good for the church in the case of the, the scenarios I've described. I mean, as a church, we've had one or two audits every now and then. From, from HMRC. If we didn't have all these records, how are they going to pass us out? 
you know, how are they going to come in? They come in and look, examine the book, see what is there, see what has been used and all of this and see whether it is meeting charitable, charity standards and charity laws within the UK. And we've, we've, we've had them time and time again. And by the grace of God, nothing has been found wanting uh, with us. But the details are recorded and kept for these purposes. So biblically, we have the records. Otherwise, we wouldn't have known what type of offering Abel gave. And so in the New Testament, people gave and it is recorded. And so in the New Testament dispensation as we are in, it is not unscriptural, it is not unbiblical. Our records can be kept so as to be able to meet these legal obligations of state and country and also individuals' personal you know, understanding of how much they have even given over the year to see this is what came in. And if all that came in at the end of the year, you see your, your tight, especially tight receipts, and you have it, and you look at it over the year and see that, wow, I've given a tight of 50,000 pounds, then that means that 500,000 pounds had come into your hands in the year. And if you at that moment, at 31st December or 1st January, you look into your accounts and you can't even find 1,000, you have to ask yourself, where have you done? What have you done with the money? It's a way for accountability as well to help you know, are you using money judiciously or just wasting money? Uh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. See, the tithing is a very special topic. Is there? Uh, you know, Bishop has given us great understanding. This one, great understanding. It's one topic which he says is what is both personally, you know, affirmation, private affirmation, and public worship. It's, it's a positive oxymoron. You know, it's both private and public at the same time. Yes. Uh, one more question on tithe, and we move to the other ones uh, very quickly. He says, should we pay tithes on loans? And what, what, are, what are we to pay our tithe on? Now, this is the mathematical bit. Is it gross or net or salary, dividends, interest, allowances? This one, we need a, we need a cry here. <laughs> Where is Pastor Hammond? <laughs> okay. Um, yes. Um, first question is, should we tithe on, on our loans? On loans yes. um, you see, we tithe on our earnings. We don't tithe on our borrowing. So, from the biblical perspective and also um, wisdom perspective, it is unwise to tithe on a loan. Because the loan even if it's sitting in your account, it's not your money. It still belongs to the bank who gave it to you. Whether a friend loaned it to you or a bank gave it to you, um, it is not your money. You have not earned it. It is not a profit. It is unwise to take a loan for a project and tithe a significant part of it um, by faith. I know that you, you want to do that, but in terms of the, this is the general counsel. Um, again, when it comes to matters of faith, it's an individual thing. But in terms of the general counsel and the general rule, we tithe on the first, you know, the Bible says that honor the Lord with your substance and the first fruit of your increase. You know, so we tithe one-tenth of our earnings, of our income. The loan is not an income. So we, we, we must not, under normal circumstances, tithe that. However, having said this, um, depending on what you took the loan for, probably for a business project, 
or a venture and you want to give a token um, as sort of like tying it to an altar to make God let the thing work for you, um, that's, that's up to you. But the general advice would be don't tithe on loans. Um, you can also make a vow that as I take this loan and put it to business, when profit comes, I'm going to give God this percentage of it so that when it is honored, when it is fulfilled, when the business for which the loan was taken has not left you in liabilities and debt, but it has brought improvement and increase and you have even paid off the loan, whatever agreement you came to with God in terms of that vow, then you honor it, it will be nice. But if you took a loan for a particular project, unless there's an element in the loan that takes care of this, then you can go ahead. But the general advice is that we don't tithe on loans. Um, that is my, my advice on that. And was there a second question? Yes, the second to? bit was whether it's gross or net. Okay. Uh, then we tithe on uh, dividends and in interest and allowances or gifts. Okay. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yes. Uh, this is also a very sensible question to ask. Uh, it has always been asked over the ages. Again, mm -hmm. let's go back to the principle in scripture. The tithe is a form of a first fruit. It comes first before every other thing. So in Bible days, how they practice it is that you give your tithe to God even before you start harvesting the rest of the things. Mm -hmm. You go quickly, take the one-tenth out of that and present it to God. And it is heaved before the Lord. So it tells us that the, the main thing is that everything first, God first in all. Now when we get employed, let's use, because there are different, that's why the scripture says, bring all the tithes. You see, there's a plurality there. Uh, it's not singular, it's plural, because we can receive different blessings within a particular month or even a week. So salary comes in, some gifts come in, some things come in, some, so we tithe each of these and present them to God. Now, because the tithe, just like the first fruit, is the first thing that is given to God above every other thing, it follows then that it is the gross. Because before any other thing is taken, what belongs to God is taken to God. So before tax is taken and all of those things, exactly what we thank God for. If I got a job and they advertise that the gross is 120000 a year, that, that, is, that is the job God gave me. That actually is what I'm being paid. Tax will take its own and all of those things. But actually, I tithe the gross. The gross, because that is everything to God first. So we give to God his one-tenth first before all other things are deducted from it. Before you eat from it, before the state takes from it, before everything, God must have his own. So I believe that it is the gross and not the net. Okay, so it's the gross, all of you. Yeah. <laughs> and then we tithe also on gifts. Some we may not have an interest. These are all increases. Yes. You know, these are all increases. So we can, we can tithe on all of them. Profits that come in 
and all of that. We tithe all of this. So that's why the scripture says, bring ye all the tithes, not just one, all the tithes. Okay. Man, all of them. Anyway, <laughs> we will carry on. The next question, we, we have quite a few of them. We'll finish up. Uh, apologies to everybody. We had an issue, so uh, we are taking a little more time than usual. But then we are running. We are almost done. So let's stick together and get understanding with Bishop James. All right? So the next question is, is, how does one deal with leadership of a church with hidden agenda? <laughs> <laughs> how do we know the hidden agenda? <laughs> it's a very subjective question or relative um, because... You, you must have an evidence um, to, to be able to ascertain that there is a hidden agenda. What, what would you call a hidden agenda? That's, that's the question. I wish the questioner had added a little bit of information um, when it says, how do you deal with church leadership with a hidden agenda? It's, it's really difficult to answer this question. Um, if you have the evidence of what constitutes a hidden agenda, I can give you, uh, you know, the, a better counsel on it. It's too general a question um, to ask, but if because we want to know what what is the agenda you are talking about? Is it that the church is not a genuine church, or is the hidden agenda an agenda to take somebody's wife, or to steal money, you know, or to kill the people in the church? You know, it's wide. It's really wide. Uh, but if it is something that has doctrinal questions, then, of course, you first of all have to approach leadership with that question. Take the Bible where you believe all these answers lie and respectfully go to leadership and raise the matter with them. Uh, but I wish you could rephrase the question, give a little bit of flesh to it, and I'll be more than happy to actually respond to it and do justice to the question. Yes, thank you. So whoever sent the question, you can... Email it to getunderstanding at christchurches.org and Bishop will pick it up. Um, if he has to get back to you, we will get back to you. Thank you. So another question says, why do some churches spend so much money on things that do not, that do not, that do not help salvation? It doesn't go to salvation, like uh, advertising and doing uh, things which are not, are not the core duties of <laughs> Christians. <laughs> okay. Again, that's a, a very good common sense question to ask. Why do some churches spend so much money <clears throat> on advertisements and other things, which necessarily is not salvation? You know, generally when you look at things, <coughs> sorry, one would have said that everything about the church is for soul winning and for salvation. So why should we spend money on anything that doesn't lead to salvation? It's a very simplistic question to ask um, because the truth is that um, there are many factors that lead to the salvation of a soul. Um, long before the altar call is made, <clears throat> there are a lot of things that go into, uh, into the work that will make um, some spending uh, be made. I'm just trying to find the choice words to present. So, uh, but the, the reality is that 
Jesus said that we must go out and preach the gospel to every creature. That means that people must hear about the message. Every church called by God, their message must be heard by others. And then it is when people hear the message that they can believe and be saved. Now the Bible tells us that when Jesus had fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights in Luke chapter 4, he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he went into a synagogue and cast a demon out. Uh, after that, the scripture says, and his fame spread throughout the whole of Galilee and Capernaum and other places. It was word of mouth that advertised his ministry. The Bible says that no one can light a lamp and put it under a bed. It must be put on a hilltop. There must be an announcement. If you don't inform people you exist, no one will know you are there. Even Jesus had to say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He made an announcement. John the Baptist had to advertise Jesus' ministry. That's how come John and James and Andrew and the others heard about him, especially John and his brother James and Peter. That's how they heard about him. The Bible said there were some disciples of John. They left John and went to Jesus. When Jesus made that advert, when John made that advertisement, said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. It was a public announcement. It was an advertisement for Christ. Now, so the, the news of the church, the news of the message of the church must be heard by others. Now, this involves a lot of media work in our day and age. Even in the days of old, means of communication and sending information is not very easy and cheap. Even for Jesus' ministry to move from one place to the other, he had to be borrowing boats. And he paid for it later on. How did he pay? He borrowed the man's boat, preached, then he multiplied fish. That fish was not for Peter to eat. He used to sell it. If you look at the kind of fish that was produced, it wasn't for... He has to sell it and make some money. And so, throughout we see that... There is a pattern of a publication. The Bible says a news about the ministry was spread abroad. And apostles and people told other people. The chief priest called them and said, you have filled the whole of Jerusalem with your doctrine. So there's news that goes around. Now in our day, I believe that some of you are being blessed as you watch us now. How do you know that we are coming on? By some advertisements. So advertisements are not evil. What is evil is if we are spending all that money as a status symbol. Because others are doing it. Maybe the budget for your church should stay within the budget for that means. Rather than spending needlessly just because others are spending. You are not at the same level as them. The advertisement put up by a congregation that seats 10,000. A pastor that seats 10,000 people may not be the same as a pastor that seats 20 people. So, there is a place for adverts. The issue is that we don't have to waste the resources. What is the motive for doing so? It's the motive. And judicious use of God's money. Every pastor must realize that the moment that offering is taken, at the altar, a prayer is made and it is handed over to God. It's not your personal property. 
it is God's own. He has a way of judging men of God and women of God who mishandle his money. So we become stewards of God's resources on behalf of the people. And we manage it judiciously and not wantonly. So that it's not a matter of competition because another church is on television and advertising, you know, 25 different adverts per second. Live within your means until you grow. But there is a place for advertisement. No one will know that we are ministering such good teaching as you are receiving tonight if someone didn't send you a flyer. If someone didn't put something up on Facebook. If someone didn't print a flyer or design a flyer. Those things, they cost. Money goes into that. Even when you produce it in-house, it still takes some energy from the people who sit for hours to design those things. And if you are working with me, you understand it will take a lot of things from you because as it comes back and I reject it and you come back and I reject it until we get the one I want, it may take hours. But you need to buy the software. The Holy Ghost didn't put that one in the computer. We have to buy it. And it's designed. So there are different requirements and needs depending on the size of the ministry. Sometimes people think that, you know, churches organize big crusades and things to make money. A lot of people make wrong calculations. I can tell you from experience and from relationship with ministers who are in the front line of crusades that when you see 10,000 people have gathered, I'm telling you, it's not an equivalent of 10,000 offering. Sometimes those platforms are needed so that somebody will hear the gospel. They are needed to gather the crowd so that at least the gospel can be heard. How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they be, how can they, you know, receive the message without someone being sent? So until there is noise and advertisement and publicity, all these things cost some money because the people involved in carrying it are also doing their work. So when you understand how church operates, Sometimes before you stand back and criticize that church, would you take a step to go and get some understanding as to what is going on? If you're in the church, sometimes you're in a very big church, you hear big monies being mentioned because it's a big church. The expenditure is bigger. But that's how organizations run. Bigger systems require bigger expenditure. Smaller systems require smaller expenditure. And so if an organization is very big, their means of advertisement will also be bigger. But in the end, all these are means by which people can become aware of the existence of that organization, of that church, of that institution, so that then before that altar call is made, all these things have gone in to gather people then they can hear the message of salvation. Amen. Amen. We are getting understanding. You know, understanding makes the difference. We are on our pen, penultimate question, and we'll be finishing soon. So it says, Bishop, is it wise for a church <laughs> to use church offering 
contributed by poor widows. I'm not sure whether the church has only poor widows, but uh, <laughs> contributed by poor widows to buy an aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, you know, sometimes people become citizens of the poor. <laughs> MPs of the poor. And spokespersons of the poor. Uh, Judah sounded like that, but the scripture told us later that he wasn't that Is it that he cared for the poor? Um, whenever people see the church is making progress or some of these things, his aircraft and all these things, and they like to criticize immediately say, you know, oh, there's the poor people there and they should have taken care of them. And, and my response to some of these people has been that I haven't seen you act in that way. You are talking about an aircraft that they could have sold it and taken care of the poor. And I said, the car you are currently driving, start with yourself. Sell your car now. Sell it and take care of the poor. Let's see if you can do it. Sell your car now. Sell your car. Because that car you are driving, there is a poor person in some village, that poor person you have been talking about, that is too expensive in that person's thinking for you to drive that car. It's very, very expensive, comparatively. So if you really know how to do this, sell that car, take public transport. Let's start with it. Sell your house, go and rent, give it to the poor. Let's see. Now back to the question. The truth is that, you see, poor, there are widows who are rich and there are widows who are poor. I don't think any poor widow's contribution can buy an aircraft. It's not possible. In fact, in the vast majority of the cases, those poor widows are being taken care of by the church. The point is that the church does not publicize the things it does for its members. <clears throat> That's why a lot of the church or the world doesn't know what the church does. But if there are really poor widows in the church, the church would have been taking care of them and their contribution would not be able to buy an aircraft. Now, back to the aircraft issue. It is reckless for a church to buy an aircraft if it is not within your means. Unless you, too, you want to buy it to show off as a status symbol that you, have also, you are also called general overseer or presiding bishop. So you want to buy an aircraft. That motive then is not supported by God. However, there are ministries that there's a genuine need for an aircraft. Please, see when we talk about aircraft, people just think this is a luxury. But in certain instances, it's a necessity. You see, if there is a village in which the highest or the most expensive means of transportation is a bicycle. If there's a church there and they decide to buy even, uh, I don't want to say secondhand, but you know when something has been secondhanded, 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 <laughs> 10 times. If they buy a bus, that would be luxury. That is unheard of and unthinkable. I do remember so many years ago when mobile phones first started arriving in my beloved country called Ghana. Our senior pastor had one. And they brought it to church. It was carried for him. 
That's the type that, you know, somebody had to carry it for you. And it was lying by his, his table as he was sitting in service. And we all saw the thing for the first and said, wow, what is, what is my pastor? They say you can talk. This is a telephone that doesn't have wires. <laughs> and, and it was, but somebody left the church because of that. Today, I believe that person has got six, six mobile phones. <laughs> See, the thing that we make noise about in a particular season, after a while, it becomes common. Because we don't understand the dynamics of the times. Some of the cars that we call cheap today, the lowest one, if you were driving that in 1950, somebody may leave your church over that one. So the fact is that there are certain ministries. If you let's take the Australian outback, certain missionaries, you can't cross to the reach the people unless you have a private jet that they take to those places to go and do real ministry. I mean, if you live in the Bahamas, you know, sometimes people have to travel from one place to the other with aircraft. So those things are available there. It's nothing. It's, it's the normal means of transportation. Some means of transportation are expensive than others. Even if you take the basic cars we all have, the cars we all have, there are some that are expensive than others. But I haven't seen anybody going on strike because of that. So certain ministries may need an aircraft. If that ministry grows to the point where they need an aircraft for the mission, there's nothing wrong with that. So long as they can afford it. So long as they are not killing the people to raise that. And sometimes we don't understand. I think there was a preacher in the U.S., who was, uh, came out to ask for his partners to give because he needed a $63 million uh, aircraft for his missions. It's a ministry that does a lot of missions to rural areas in Africa and other places. A lot of people came out to criticize, and I was asked my opinion about it, and I laughed. I laughed because we're talking about a man who has been doing ministry for about 35 to 40 years. And has got partners across the world. Even me, I have partners across the world. But not to his size. But he's got over 20 million partners across the world. When we were on television um, in, in the UK, when we were on um, Revelation TV and, and Faith TV, we had 22 million homes watching me every Sunday at 7 p.m. Those are potential partners. He has 20 million partners across the world who communicate with him. What is he asking for $63 million? Think. He's not taking it from the church. He's asking every partner for at least $3. If you multiply $3 by 20 million people, that's $60 million straight away. So unless you have the dynamics of what is going on, and he's not doing it for his person, but for the ministry, if they are at that level, and they are really doing genuine work, and that this became a necessity, why not? However, if it is because we all want to feel belonged, so we have to milk the ministry, skin the people, squeeze their neck to give at all cost. It's expensive to have an aircraft, paying pilots, jet fuel, all those things, hunger, where to keep it. My God. Those who have yachts in Switzerland, in, 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 in Zurich, where they bet it, you know, the rich bet it, it's $100,000 a year 
Do you have that one? <laughs> so the point is that there is nothing wrong with that means of transportation if it advances the course of the ministry, praise the Lord. Genuinely. But it shouldn't be just because we also want to show off at the detriment of the ministry. That is a poor stewardship of God's money and we require it at your hands. But to settle the issue, poor widows and the poor in the congregation, if you see how much they contribute, it cannot buy an aircraft. So that statement must cease forthwith. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh, I have had so much understanding, you know. Poor, poor, poor widows buying aircraft. <laughs> anyway, we are on our final question. And uh, another interesting question says, what does render unto Caesar what Caesar, what Caesar's? mean does it apply in the case of observing cultural practices or one considers demonic <laughs> <laughs> this is like some of the tempting questions that they throw at jesus <laughs> um what does render unto caesar what is caesar's mean and to god what is god i think that's matthew 22 uh, from verse 16 uh, down um, and and it, it it begins by saying that you know, it follows right after the triumphant entry to Jerusalem. And so Jesus then was speaking to them, and that's in chapter 21. Chapter 22, it was following. And the Bible says that uh, after he had preached and spoken in the parable, the Pharisees and the Sadducees felt offended. And they were looking for means by which they can trap him in his preaching. Um, so sometimes people attended his services not because they want to hear the gospel, but they want to hear something he said, then they can go and tell his enemies. Uh, if you have been in ministry for long and you have enemies in the ministry, you see some people come to church not to hear you, but they want to hear something you said so that they can just twist it and then use it to attack you. So Jesus also had people like that attending his ministry that they might find a statement he made. And when they couldn't find one, the Bible said then they sent their disciples and the Herodians. Now the Herodians, normally the Pharisees and Sadducees wouldn't do anything with them. The Herodians were Jews, but they are aristocratic Jews. They had actually, they are in bed with the Roman colonizers. And so they are enjoying, and they sometimes are sent to tax the Jews. So the Jews typically don't like them, and they are the people who actually try to execute taxation on the people of God. And so at this point, they found that they can find a tricky question to throw at Jesus publicly. And so the Bible says that they came to ask that question with evil intent to tempt him. And the question was, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it right for us to pay taxes? Now that's a very, very tricky question. It is tricky because at that time, the Caesar in, pow in power uh, was a very, very wicked person. And the Bible tells us that, and the church history proves at this point, that the, the Jews were not comfortable with the fact that they are being colonized and they are being taxed. Taxation was an issue that was a very big issue. They don't like it. The moment you tax them, it reminds them that they are subjects and they hated it. So when you throw that question to Jesus publicly, it's a very dangerous question. If Jesus says it is all right 
to tax the people. The Jews will be upset at him that he's in bed with the colonial master. If he said it is not right to pay taxes, he is speaking against the emperor and he will be dealt with. So at this stage, the Caesar there was Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was a very, very dangerous creature. And he, on the money, the coin that was used to pay the temple tax, or the, sorry, the tax in those days, it has its image on it. Just like the normal coins you all have, that have got the head of the queen in the UK, you've got uh, either the, you know, former leaders of countries on, on our money and currencies. In this case, he owns it. Tiberius Caesar really has his image on these coins. These, these denarius were not that many. He didn't mean that many. You need to be in a certain class to be having it. So you have a lot of other coins to exchange for that. Then you use that to actually pay the tax. It's a very exacting tax. His image is on it. And it's on the, first, on the front side of that um, coin. His name is there as, you know, Tiberius Caesar son of Augustus. And it says, son of the God Augustus. So he's a son of God. And behind it, it is high priest of Roman gods. Now this is what was being brought to Jesus at that point in that tricky question. And just like the previous one when a woman was caught in adultery and they asked him, Moses said we should stone. If he said go ahead, they will accuse him of forsaking his mercy mission. If he said don't stone, they will say he has broken the law of Moses. Both ways he can't win. So he has to go down, get into himself, pick on with the Holy Spirit, and come up with an answer that shocked the people. In the same way in this situation, he was thrown into this situation. And he had to wisely, by divine inspiration, answer the question to say, can I have the coin? Your currency. Let me see it. And then he says, whose image is on it? They said, Caesar's. He said, in that case, you are asking me whether we should pay taxes. In that case, give what belongs to Caesar. To, this money belongs to Caesar. Give this thing to him in terms of the taxes asking you for. And give what belongs to God to God. In the context of that scripture, Jesus was not even endorsing taxation in that realm. You know, because he can't endorse it at that time. I mean, today it's proper to pay tax because you belong to a country and the country sees that. But at that point in time, that is a statement of humiliation to a Jew. Because if he had to pay the tax, it means he's still in captivity and they are not comfortable with it. That's why there were several revolts. That's why Jesus, you know, they saw him as a Messiah, as a next king that they thought physically is coming to deliver them from the Romans. So this is the context and background of that scripture. Now, let's look at it the way people have been interpreting it. Especially with reference to the question that talks about traditional authorities. I mean, sometime, for some traditional areas like where we come from in, in Ghana, you know, at the end, we're at a particular time, around this season, I think maybe that's why the person has asked this question. Just around this time, um, around May, there is this ban on drumming and noise making, uh, which is a request by the fetish, the traditional priests and... Uh, in Accra, in Ghana, as an example, it's a case study. I come from there, so I can talk from there. But this happens in other areas. But there, when it's getting to this festival, which will be celebrated in August, 
around May, there is the planting of corn and rituals are performed. And then the gods say that there should be no disturbance, no noise at all. And the target always goes to the churches that because they are drumming, etc. And whenever these matters come up in the public, we see that spokesmen for the traditional areas keep on saying, but your Bible even says, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. And my position has always been that you can't be quoting from that scripture. Otherwise, you must behave yourself and believe that you shall have no other gods before me. It's there. You must believe that one too. But the context has nothing to do with worship of idols. Because the moment we give God's own to God, which is you shall have no other gods before me, I can't satisfy you if that is the context. But if we are looking at even in the context of taxation, it has nothing to do with fetishism and idol worship or traditional worship or demands of a spiritual being that is asking us to keep quiet, that I need to satisfy him equally as my God. We can't satisfy that at all. That Caesar was not that shrine. And so that contest in terms of, sometimes people have asked this in many ways, so give to Caesar. It, it has nothing to do, if whatever you're asking me to do is not in line with the word of God, I'm giving God's own to God. And the moment I give God's own to you, I can never give yours to you. So it, that scripture doesn't apply in this uh, day and, you know, the context of doing something where they are being forced to do something and they say, give to Caesar what is Caesar. So if they are asking you, if they're trying to say that, come and do this customary thing, you give to Caesar what is Caesar. You can't give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. Because if it's got to do with the worship of any other deity, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. That means he knew there were other gods who are not him. And we are not supposed to worship them. Every dictate, every demand, anything from that shrine cannot be applicable to you because you must give to God what is God's. And the moment you give to God what is God's, you can't give to Caesar. You can't do anything unrighteous. Who is being called Caesar here? So I believe that that is the answer to this, um, you know, poorly understood scripture that sometimes you have heard even unbelievers quoting and saying that it says, give to Caesar what is Caesar. So we have to, the other one you're asking me to do, is it Bible? Is it godly? Is it biblical? Is it scriptural? How spiritual is it? So long as I don't find anything there that matches what God has said, I can't give to that Caesar. I will have to give to God. And the moment we give to God, we can give back to Caesar. That is my response to that question. Amen and amen. I think this get understanding has been so deep. It has been so prodigious and very astute. We thank God for and we had a myriad of questions from tithes to poor widows and everything. And I'm sure the understanding, if you were following us, our understanding and our mindset should change. Now we understand what the Bible is actually saying. You know, we will agree with Bishop. He said if he had been preaching, we wouldn't be able to have gone through all the different angles we have done today. Mm. So we thank God for giving us the time. Uh, can you all join me? And we say God bless you, Papa, for availing yourself for Amen. 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 Thank you.